Uh, we're in our final week of our series, uh, exploring the graces of God, the grace upon grace upon grace the Scripture speaks about. And, and again, these words aren't necessarily in this particular order found in Scripture, but they're those phrases and words that theologians and Bible scholars throughout the years have I figured out this explains what Scripture is doing, right? What, what we see in Scripture, these words kind of put a handle on it. So our final week this morning, for many folks, um, maybe you can, you can recall this, uh, some of the scariest times as a child, nighttime, bedtime, we got two granddaughters and I'm, and I'm hearing the pain and the suffering that my daughter and my son-in-law go through every night when it's time to go to bed. 12 times I need a glass of water, <laughs> 13 times, you know, just all these delaying tactics. And, you know, the, I understand, you know, I've been there. Going to bed at night was just probably the worst part of any 24-hour period, right? You wondered what monsters are in the closet, what monsters are under the bed, right? And, and, and we, we knew, we knew then and we know now there are there, there's no such things as, as the monsters. There, there weren't any then. There weren't any now. And we told our kids that, but I, I, I would suggest this morning that maybe, maybe we were wrong. Um, I'm not a sci- child psychiatrist, but a psychologist, I, but, but I, I, I feel like, and I could be wrong, and you can tell me afterwards if you're a child psychologist, um, monster is just the term that a child puts onto something, a fear, an anxiety that that they don't have a label for yet, right? They don't, they don't know the big words, and, and, and so, monsters. But I would suggest also this morning that there's, there's one monster, right, that still haunts us, even as adults. Right? It's, it's that monster that, that shows up again in the middle of the night, more often than not, not during the day when it's bright and sunny and things are going fairly well, but it's at night. And this monster is called the worst of all possibilities, and whatever it is you're facing, whatever hardship, whatever task that you got before you that, that you're just nervous about, everything that could go wrong, you kind of rehearse laying in bed at night, and we lose sleep, and bedtime, just, just, a, just a rough, rough, rough place. And so we, we desperately pray, oh, pray, oh God, oh God, right, please don't let that happen, because we both know I, I'll never be able to handle that. General Superintendent David Busick in his book that Dan and I are working from, The Way, the Truth, and the Life, Discipleship is a Journey of Grace. He shares a conversation he had with a friend who had said very, very similar things, um, referring to how someone could possibly carry on when they'd lost a child. His friend concluded that he simply wouldn't have the strength to carry on. And Dr. Busick replied, you're right. You're right. You don't have the strength right now because you've never had to walk there. And I hope you never have to, but if you ever did, there would be, our topic for this morning, sufficient grace. So here's the problem or the, yeah, it's not a problem, dilemma, maybe a mystery, the mystery of, of God's grace, and even in all the forms that we've looked at, particularly today, um, as we've looked at it so far, let, let me just kind of let this unwind here. Because God can't stop loving us, in fact, loving the entire world, right, even those actively fighting against him and, and rejecting him, 
Um, he loves us so much that he never stops initiating these gracious invitations to walk with him, to walk beside him. The first gracious invitation we call provenient grace. Pastor Dan called it very well, I think, sneaky grace. Right? It's the grace that went before us, before we trusted him, before we even knew who he was or what he was up to, right? Maybe even when we were actively rebelling against him. And maybe it was a hotel Bible. Um, maybe it was a close friend or a relative, a, a church or a small group, um, a loving neighbor. By some way, some, some means of grace, Right? Um, avenues, people, circumstances through which God works. God was working in your life, drawing you closer to Him. Right? Drawing you closer to the abundant life. Right? Real life. Life with Him. So here's something that many folks miss about grace, though. I'm going to kind of take a little detour here and I'm going to come back to these graces. Um, this is from the book. Grace is personal, experienced, and known only in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, manifested in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So grace isn't something like given to us, like, like a book or, or, or a set of directions or even a power. Um, it's not an object that can pass from hands to hand or, or from mind to mind. Um, biblically speaking, the grace of God is His actual presence. That's the gift of grace. It's not something that grace gives us. It's the presence of God in our lives. And through him and in him, we find peace and we, we, we find life. We, we find life with him. For God so loved the world, he came and dwelled among us, right? God can't help but be present in the life of the world that he loves, this explains the answer that Jesus gave Thomas when, when Jesus was trying to explain to the disciples that he had to go away, right, that he had to die. He said to Thomas, well, Thomas said to him, Lord, why don't, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? See, Thomas was looking for a map or a set of directions, right? Do this, don't do that. You know, turn left here, but definitely don't turn right up at the corner. But Jesus said something else instead. It, was probably quite shocking, and I doubt that, he, that Thomas even understood it at that point. He said, I'm, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? You know the way, Thomas, right? You've been walking beside him for the last several years, pointing at Jesus, not, not me. See, this is the mistake that Simon made in the book of Acts, right? He thought he could purchase Something could change hands, and something could be given from the disciples to him. He could stick in his pocket like some kind of magic potion book. He, he, he missed it. He, he didn't understand what exactly the grace of God was. See, it's only when we're in the presence of Jesus Christ by way of the Holy Spirit that we experientially know grace upon grace upon grace. It's kind of like the difference between reading about and intellectually understanding what it might be like to lose a child and then actually losing a child too radically radically different things. And so we only experience and know provenient grace as the wooing presence of God in our lives by way of the Holy Spirit. And it's the same with the other graces that we've been looking at, saving grace, right, that holistically changes us. 
We're justified, right, or pardoned, set free from the eternal consequences of sin. We're regenerated, whereby the moral nature of the repentant believer is spiritually quickened and given a distinctly spiritual aspect in their lives, makes, makes us capable of, of love and, and faith. And we're adopted, which is that gracious act by which God justifies and takes the justified and regenerated believer and constitutes them as a child of God. We sang this song a little bit earlier, I'm a child of God. Right? You can't be a child of God unless you are in a relationship with him. My daughter can't call me dad unless she's actually my daughter. Right? She can be far away, but, but we're linked in a very, very deep personal way. She's my daughter and I'm her dad. She can't call me that if I wasn't her dad. It was only in calling me that in, in that we're in a relationship. She is actually my daughter and I'm actually her father that those words even make sense. We experience and know God in all these ways, but only by way of a relationship with him. And then we looked at sanctifying grace, right? The presence of Jesus in our lives by way of the Holy Spirit constantly challenging us to surrender more and more of our, our so-called lives in exchange for the abundant life, real life, life with, life with God. And then last week we looked at sustaining grace, the grace of God that works through daily disciplines, habits, practices, that means of grace, right? Channels through which God's presence works in our lives. Daily disciplines that keep us moving forward on the path that we've been called to. And because God works in and through these new practices and these new habits, we slowly develop the character of God. We become the character of Christ. We become Christ-like as we begin to reflect the one in us and working through us. He, grace gives us so much to celebrate. And I'm sure as we've been working through these weeks, you have found moments to celebrate where God's grace has been in your life, right? His presence has made a difference. In fact, Paul says, Paul has lots to say about grace. He suggests in Philippians that we shine like stars, and in Romans that we're more than conquerors. In fact, he has a lot to say about how grace enables us to overcome sin, to rise above it all, right, to transform us into new creatures. Right? It's the gift of God's favor toward us. It's the gift that changes everything. Grace makes all things new, except when it doesn't. If we aren't careful, we can translate grace as we talk about it, as we talk about it with our neighbors and we share the grace of God in our lives. If we're not careful, we present grace as some kind of form of spiritual invincibility. And assume that if we're living in grace and then we encounter problems, suffering, we just pray it away. Poof, it's gone. And then our friends and our neighbors try that, and it, that's not the reality of the situation. It's not that simple. It's not hidden. It's not mysterious. It's not something that we can't discover. He wants us to discover it, but it's not that simple. Or worse, we turn suffering in this world into something trivial. Hey, in heaven, we're all going to be holy, holistically and holy, and, and so, so stop complaining about your suffering. Right? Things are going to get better. Or if the pain doesn't go away, we believe we must have fallen from grace. And now God's punishing us. 
And so we struggle to feel the love of God. So what happens when the pain and suffering doesn't end? It's only then that we experience and we know Jesus as sustaining grace, excuse me, sufficient grace. Sufficient grace is only known and experienced when you got to have it to even continue living, right? You just got to have it. Life's rough, and, and I'm fairly certain that nobody gets out of this life with, without getting marked in some way, right? Some kind of scarring, permanent damage, right? Rarely is life as black and white as well-intentioned Christians tell their friends, oh, everything's beautiful, no problems, now, that might be true for a season, but if you're really honest, you, you shouldn't be saying that to people. Sometimes life leaves lasting, enduring marks, pain and suffering that simply never goes away. This is when we experience and we know Jesus has sufficient grace. Maybe it's a mental health issue, a crisis that persists, right? Maybe it's when that person that we prayed for dies. Maybe it's when we still lose our job. Maybe it's when we prayed for a baby and nothing happened. What happens then? Was everything a lie? Was it all just a feeling? Because we're told by so many people, look, you give your life to Christ and all of that will go away. Life will be beautiful. Joy will return. But what is well, what do we do when it doesn't? Sometimes the jar of clay that Paul suggests holds glory. Sometimes that jar of clay breaks, it cracks, right? That, that's the way jars of clay are. It's the way clay is. Sometimes we end up like Paul with a thorn that we can't simply pray away. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul lets us in on something very personal and very painful in his life. And we don't know the details. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to share with you some stabs that scholars have made, but we really have no idea what this thorn was in his side, this issue that simply wouldn't go away. And in doing so, he lets us in on how sufficient grace works in our lives. 2 Corinthians verse 7, chapter 12 says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. See, Paul had experienced something extraordinary. The presence of God in a way that most of us wish we could. And I mean, it, it was just beyond description. You can read that in chapter 12. And he was in danger of becoming real big-headed, kind of conceited. Whoa, you haven't had experience like that? Whoa, you're not as spiritual as me, right? You don't pray that as many hours as I pray. Whoa, you're not as spiritual as me. You, you, you've heard that. You, you've heard people say that. Now, we've got to read this passage very, very carefully. Or we end up naming something that is evil as from God, or we name something that is from God as evil. God isn't the author of evil. Genuine evil exists in the world. And as we experience that evil, we navigate life. As we navigate life, we, we experience that evil. But... But Scripture reminds us that one of God's specialties is, is to redeem all things, even things that the evil one intends to hurt us with. Remember, Joseph said to his brothers, you intended to harm me. This is in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good 
to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Notice Joseph did not say that God caused his brothers to sell him into slavery. He said that God would not let their evil intentions have the last word. Paul says the same thing in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Again, notice that Paul didn't say that God causes bad things, only that God is faithful to work in everything, good and bad, to take what appears to be only destructive and broken and, and make, it, make it whole again, make, make it holy. This idea, this interpretation becomes a bit more clear when you read what happens next in verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, and we don't want to take that too literally. More than likely, well, I know that for a fact that this is a Jewish phrase, right? Literally, it means I prayed and 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 prayed. He never stopped praying. This was a big issue. This was huge. Whatever it was, he's trying to let us know, look, evil has visited me. Right? Even, even, even me, the great Paul, missionary extraordinaire to the Gentiles, the one that Jesus appeared to personally, right? even me. And even though Paul prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, God decided not to remove whatever it was, whatever it was that Satan had intended for evil, but God used for a greater good to keep Paul humble. That's, that's a big part of it. It's in his own words. But I think more importantly, to demonstrate God's power. And again, we don't know for certain if the thorn was, whatever it was, was it physical, you know, stories, a, a bad eyesight, malaria, um, a, a disabled leg in some form or, or other. Um, you know, the list kind of goes on, and it might have been emotional, right? You think about Paul going into these cities where he comes into eyeball-to-eyeball contact with families who had lost their dad, lost their mom because of what Paul had done when he was persecuting Christians. Now, that had to have been rough. That's, a, that's an emotional anchor. Maybe it was relational. Tonight, your homework, go read chapter 11 of the second letter. And you find out all the things that, ha- all the crazy things that happened to Paul. And then you find out throughout all these horrible, horrible times, people he loved and ministered next to, when the times got rough, they left. And I, and I can imagine Paul on a regular basis, what am I doing? Right? As soon as times get rough, all these people that I poured into, they, they just leave. Lord, what, am I, what are you doing? What, what am I doing? What are you doing? Because this doesn't seem to be working as I thought it would. But here's what we do know. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, in Paul's eyes, if God would simply remove the thorn, it would make him a stronger leader, a better churchman. So God answered his prayer. Right? God would make him stronger and a better churchman, but not in the way that Paul expected or wanted. <laughs> Same with us, right? We pray something, and we think that that's the route God's going to take because in our lives that route is perfect, and he says, no, I'm going to take you this other route because we, we got some things to work through before we arrive at that destination. I'm not going to let you take a shortcut. You're going to walk with me. No, Paul, he said, you're going to keep this thorn. 
But know this, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you to do what I've called you to do. In fact, you are stronger, this is a paraphrase, Dr. Busick's words, you're stronger in your weakest moments when I'm with you than you are in your strongest moments without me. That's kind of shocking, kind of deflates us just a little bit, just a little bit if we let it. See, God isn't against making you stronger, but never in a way that might lead somebody watching or even you to assume, hey, it was all you. Right? If you're going to call on his help, he wants to be glorified. Is God being petty? (laughs) No. He just knows of the two of you, (laughs) he knows who's the faithful one, who's more faithful, right? Who never stumbles? So he wants to make sure that people see him and not the one that we all know is going to (laughs) stumble, right? So let's make this personal. A game I've always liked playing with the teens is called What If. Maybe you've done this. A what if question goes something like this. What if God could change one thing in your life? One thing that you could then do something or you could have done something. Fill in the blank. Right? If God could change one thing, then I could or I could have. Fill in the blank. Just give you a moment. I've thought about mine, I've thought about my wife, I've thought about different people. I can take some wild stabs, but, but you know, you know what it was. Maybe this or that didn't happen in your life. Maybe it was that one big mistake you made in life. Maybe it was a whole series of mistakes that you made in your life, if you're really honest. Like there was just this bad chapter and you just kind of blew it all over the place. Or maybe it was that one brutal assault or that one broken dream. For most of us, that that one loss from which you've never quite recovered. You could have been a contender. Or maybe those are all things in the past. Maybe it's that monster that keeps you up at night, the worst of all possibilities. And it has you paralyzed, right, frozen in your tracks. You've decided, I'm I'm, I'm not sticking my neck out anymore. It's just too risky. Now, it seems to me that this person in this situation, right, when pain and suffering doesn't end or it feels like everything is completely out of your control, something or someone or some circumstance, right, is is trying to pry something from your hands. Um, This person has two choices. One choice, surrender to the situation. Shake your fist at God. This isn't fair. And the second choice, surrender the situation to God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In fact, this second choice wasn't only Paul's choice and Joseph's choice. It was the same exact option that our Savior took while dying on a Roman cross. In Luke chapter 3, it says this, verse 44 and 45, it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, that curtain that separated us from God, that we could only experience the presence of God through the priest, and and the temple's torn, signifying that we now have (coughs) direct access to God, no more intermediaries. Verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
Dr. Buick writes this, into your hands is a prayer of full surrender. Because in this prayer, we declare that we are taking ourselves out of the hands of other people, out of the hands of situation, circumstances, and willingly placing our lives in God's hands. In other words, will the situation be taken from us or will we, or will it be given to God? See, we get to decide how we're going to let go of the pain and suffering that has us frozen, unable to move forward, unable to experience joy. Dr. Buick continues, in this prayer, Jesus introduces us to the shocking power of sacrifice. By surrendering to God, we're able to turn something that looks for all the world like a loss into something that is for all the world a gain. Now, I'm going to share something. I, I always do this hesitantly. I'm not Jewish, in case you were wondering. If you're Jewish, if you're listening, um, and I get this wrong, I, I'm, I am sorry. I, I did not mean to get it wrong. This is as best as I could figure out a Jewish morning prayer that the Jewish people have been praying for millennia. It begins with the I thank prayer, first prayer a Jewish person prays in the morning. And expresses the worship's gratitude for another day of life. It goes like this. I thank thee, living and eternal king, for thou hast mercifully restored my soul within me. Great is thy faithfulness. Remember of the two, who's more faithful? <laughs> Great is your faithfulness. You might have prayed a similar prayer as a child. Go something like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. And if I should live another day, I pray thee, Lord, to guide my way. Yep, that's, that's the prayer of the night before, and then the Jewish prayer is the prayer in the morning. But the assumption of the Jewish prayer is that the worshiper entrusted their spirit to God for safekeeping the previous evening. In fact, many ob observant Jews, this is what I read, um, use the phrase, into your hands I commit my spirit at the end of their evening prayers. You think about Christ praying that prayer on the cross, knowing that he's going down into the grave. That was scary, and that's risky. Very likely that Jesus in his agony was reciting this psalm from memory, the prayer he prayed every night before he went to bed. We read these words earlier. We read these words early in Psalm chapter 31 from where those words are taken. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. You ever had a friendship that later on you're like, I never knew that person. I don't know what you're talking about. He's saying that you'll never have that experience if you put your trust in Jesus. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Right? Both prayers, the Jewish prayer and the little prayer we prayed as kids. Maybe you still pray it. <laughs> Sorry. Keep me free from the trap that is set before me. For you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. See, there's a huge difference between having something taken from you and having given it. 
One theologian said this, to sacrifice something is to make something, to make it holy by giving it away for love. See, when we open up our hands and give away what others thought was being taken from us and what circumstances seem to be robbing from us, right, we can make holy by doing it for love, by surrendering it to God. Jesus made this clear in the Gospel of John. John writes this in chapter 10, starting in verse 17. No one takes it from me. He's talking about his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. It wasn't a life taken. It was a life given. You're catching this. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. And we see it again while he was on the cross. In John chapter 19, verse 28, later, knowing that everything had now been finished. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. And so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Verses 29, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop, 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 plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. I think John is thinking back. I think he's, he's recognizing and pointing out what everybody in the audience that day heard, reading between the lines. Um, Psalm 69, 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. The passage continues with verse 30. It says, when he had received the drink, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I want you to notice several things in this passage right here. First, Jesus gave up his life, right? A life taken rather than, excuse me, a life given rather than taken. In fact, your homework this morning, go back and read John 4, verse 34, and and John 17, verse 4. And Jesus is talking about to his disciples, look, I, I, I have a job to finish. I have a task to finish. That's why I'm here. I can't move on until I've finished the work that God has given me to finish. And second, he didn't say it's finished in a weary, like defeat, a defeated kind of voice, like I lost. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't some tragic ending to a promised life or a a disappointment of a failed mission, right? He said it was one who shouts for joy, and in fact, in the other Gospels, Christ shouts, it's finished. He said it as one who shouts for joy because the victory had been won. He stuck it out when suffering and pain wasn't going to be taken from him. And thirdly, he bowed his head. John uses the word that might be used for for somebody settling back on a pillow after a long day's hard work and finally rest and peace. For Jesus, the strife was over and the battle was won. He seemed to be broken on the cross, but he knew that his victory had been won. And what was it that had been finished? What victory had been won? Dr. Busick writes, The cross was God's cosmic plan to rescue us from the darkness and the death grip of sin. Thus, Jesus' sacrifice was not imposed on him. He willingly embraced it for us. And in doing so, Jesus experienced his heavenly Father as as sufficient grace. Now, make no mistake about it. Jesus had a choice. He had a choice as to how he would handle the pain and the suffering, as, as we all do. We have a choice when when the pain and suffering doesn't end. In fact, Jesus prayed the same prayer, almost the exact same prayer that Dr. Busick's friend had prayed about losing a child. 
and that Paul had prayed about the thorn in his flesh. The same prayer we all desperately pray when we think that we can't do what God has called us to do. Oh, God, please don't let that happen because we both know I'll never be able to handle that. You don't believe me? Watch this. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed on the last hours on earth. Mark chapter 14, verse 35. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Did Did you ever catch that? Literally, Father in heaven, I really don't want to do this. I don't want to suffer. He continues, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Listen, if you're praying that, it, you're in good company. Your Savior prayed the same prayer. And yet, there's the kicker. Not what I will, but what you will. So when it appears to all the world and to us, there's no grace to celebrate, right? When the pain and suffering never, it it just doesn't end. When our world feels so completely out of control, and yet, yet we have a choice. We can surrender the situation to God or we can surrender surrender to the situation or surrender the situation to God. I want to close with the words of Peter. I want to put this passage. I want you to put this passage on a bathroom mirror, somewhere where you see it every day. If you're struggling and you haven't found any grace to celebrate in and you're maybe barely holding on with this last grace, this this sufficient grace, I want you to read it every day until the pain and suffering subsides or until Jesus calls you home. Or until he tells you to stop praying that prayer. Maybe start praying a prayer of thankfulness for everything that you do have. I don't want to trivialize the pain, but pray until he tells you to pray something different. And experience Jesus daily as your sufficient grace. And to finally experience peace and contentment as one laying their heads back on a pillow right at the end of a long, hot, sticky day of work and Knowing that the battle had been finally won, we read this, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in 23. When they hurled their their insults at him, this is Jesus on the cross. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he raised his fist to heaven and declared, this isn't fair. Right? No, you know, that's not what he said. Here's what he said instead. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Into your hands, I commit my pain. Into your hands, I commit my suffering. Into your hands, I commit my my reservations, my fears. Into your hands, I commit my will. I commit my very life to him who judges justly. So we have a choice. We can raise our fist. God, this isn't fair. Or we give him the situation. We surrender the situation to him. And in that sacrificial act of of giving up, we might have been holding on to for a lot of different reasons. By giving that up, we're saying we we trust you. You're more faithful than, than I am. So I'm going to put this in, in, in your bank. I'm going to quit holding on to it because it's going to get all jacked up if I hold on to it. 
If you bow your heads. Father, we all experience you so differently. I only know that by just, just talking with people. And in so many different ways, I wonder why. I've never experienced that. And I hear people and, and, and I listen to them talk and I think, they've never experienced God. And so, Father, recognizing that we all experience you so radically different, we, right, we, we have to surrender it all to you. Our expectations of what you were supposed to be, what we hoped you would be. And it's so difficult to, to, to let go, to, 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 to just put our hands out in front of us and, and surrender those things that we've held on so tightly to, to surrender them to you. But Father, your word makes so, so abundantly clear that when we finally surrender these things to you, we experience your presence in ways that the world probably will never understand because they've never walked where, where you've walked. So again this morning, Father, by the power of your spirit, we recognize that some things won't be made right until we're standing in your presence. But that's okay. That's okay. Because you've won the victory. You were perfectly faithful, perfectly obedient, and we get to enjoy the benefits of that. Sufficient grace. Thank you, Father, for the work you're doing in the lives of every single person who hears my voice. That you're already doing a work in the lives of people who have no idea who you are because you're working in and through followers of your son, means of grace, channels through which you can love people who don't know you yet. Thank you, Father, for grace, for amazing grace. And thank you especially for this last one, this probably the most mysterious of all, sufficient grace in our weakness. We're made strong. When we finally get to the end of our rope, that's when you, in fact, we sang a song earlier, Father, be still. Be still and know that I am, I am God. I am the Lord. And Father, that, 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 that psalm is an amazing, it, it's a very militant passage. Father, what it's saying is what we've learned this morning, that when we've done all the fighting that we can do, when we've done all that we can do, we, we stop and, and we rest and you take over. You do the heavy lifting. Father, you don't excuse us from work, but you step in and do the heavy lifting. We thank you for this. We thank you if it's happened already. We thank you for what might very well happen in, in somebody's life. And, and Father, if we're very honest, what might not happen until we meet you in person. Thank you, Father, for your grace, for your amazing grace. In your son's precious name I pray.
Amen.